Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. Once the stuff of science fiction or far-flung futuristic dreams, the ability to eat juicy sausages, fish fillets, or even a sizzling steak without having to first slaughter an animal is rapidly becoming a reality as the cultured meat and seafood industries continue to leap forward exponentially in research, development, and full-scale productions. In the past year, several players in the cultivated meat, aka clean meat or lab-grown meat space, have offered journalists and other taste testers the first chicken nuggets, sausages, and steaks made from cells of animals that were not harmed beyond the uncomfortable pinch of a biopsy to abstain the cell line. And while the reviews of these products have been a bit mixed, the reality is, is that these products exist not in the figment of imagination, but as a soon-to-be centerpiece on plates in high-end restaurants and at food service. But before that can happen, companies making cultured meat, fish, and poultry products must overcome several challenges related to production, pricing, consumer education, and regulatory approval. At the Reducitarian Summit in Washington, D.C. late last month, I had the honor of moderating a panel discussion on the future of cellular agriculture, how to hack meat. I was joined by three frontrunners in the space, including Blue Nalo CEO and President Lou Kuberhaus, New Age Meats Director of Operations, John Pattison, and the pet food company Because Animals co-founder and CEO Shannon Falconer. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, I'll feature highlights from that discussion, including the basics of cultivated meat, where the segment is in the innovation and production cycle, what these products could mean for the health of environment, people, and pets, as well as the current status of regulatory oversight and when we can expect to see these products on plates. So in the past few years, leading industry players in the cultivator or cell meat segment have pushed back against calling their products lab-grown for fear that it'll conjure images of mad scientists in lab coats with petri dishes, which could understandably turn off consumers. Rather, they argue that their products are made in factories just like most mass-produced foods, such as chips, cereals, and sliced bread. While that may be true, the logistics of how cell-based products are made is different from other categories. At the most fundamental level, it involves four key elements, cell cultures, scaffolding, media, and a bioreactor cultivator, plus a lot of protected intellectual property. Falconer from Because Animals explains that the process starts with obtaining the cell cultures, which can be done through a quick biopsy that might be uncomfortable for animals but ultimately leaves them still alive, or from a bank of existing cell lines. Once that's done, the process of feeding and growing the cells begins. So combining vitamins, minerals, um, uh, protein, and various growth factors, you're able to actually nourish these cells. They grow. Uh, and then eventually, depending on the type of tissue you're working with, some of these cells, if you're growing muscle, 
they need to adhere in order to grow. So you would provide them with something that they can actually stick to. So if you think in an animal or a human, the, the tissue is going to adhere to bone um, and is going to grow. And then, um, so you need scaffolding if you're going to work with, say, muscle, muscle tissue. Uh, and then um, you grow it up, and, and this all sounds very simplistic, it's not quite um, as easy as it, as it sounds, um, but then at that point you would harvest it, and so hence you have meat that is cellularly identical to what you would get from an animal, um, but it's grown without the animal. With respect to our prototype that we launched in, or that we um, advertised in, in the spring, um, and where we're at in terms of our scaling right now, um, we are using cell lines that are that are publicly available. So I, I think something that people may not be so familiar with is that actually cell, cell growth or growing tissue in a lab is, is not, it did not start with the cultured meat industry. Um, researchers have been growing tissue in the lab for many decades. And so as a result of this, there is a very, very extensive line, a repository of different cell lines um, that, is, that is available to scientists or commercially speaking. So for our scaling purposes, we are working with cell lines that have been around for, again, many, many, many decades. Um, and so we didn't actually obtain these cells from the animal ourselves. Um, they've been in these stock freezers for over 50 years. For Blue Nalu, there wasn't a bank of seafood cells. And as such, Cooper House said that his company worked with universities to take biopsies from quote-unquote pure aquacultured fish. Similarly, Pattison said that New Age Meats also obtained a biopsy from a pig, which he stressed left the pig alive and has the potential to save millions of other animal lives. We took a biopsy from a live pig, and that pig scampered back off into the farm. He's still alive today. And then we used that sample and developed a cell line from there. And then we used that and grew up fat and muscle tissue um, and then created our sausage out of that. So does it hurt the animal? It may be uncomfortable slightly for that moment where we take the biopsy, but it's still alive, right? So we see that as a really positive thing. Um, and then we don't have to keep going back once we develop that cell line. Uh, we can just use that uh, sort of indefinitely. While obtaining the cell line sounds difficult and expensive, it is nothing compared to replicating them and actually creating meat. In fact, Pattison said the biggest challenge is facing new age meats is developing the medium inputs and scaling production. Two biggest problems for us right now to solve are media inputs or inputs into the production. So that's the cost of the nutrients. And then also, how do you scale that up? So doing this in a small flask or on a bench top in a laboratory uh, is very different than doing it in two, three, four thousand liter fire reactors, which is the scale that's going to be needed uh, to actually drive down cost and produce enough that people are going to be able to eat it uh, in the mainstream. Um, when we're looking at other industries too, what's fascinating, and you see this going to different conferences and talking with different stakeholder groups, that a lot of this technology is somewhat existent, um, but it's applied to the pharmaceutical industry or to the traditional food manufacturing. And so we're really excited about talking with these different groups of people and these different companies and how can we take what is in existence and apply it to this problem. Um, so we are in conversations already. Another challenge currently holding back the segment is determining the best way to regulate cell-based products and ensure their safety. 
At the end of last year, FDA and USDA ended their turf war over who would have primary jurisdiction over cell-based products and decided that they would share oversight, a decision that Patterson says many players are happy with, but he knows there's still a few kinks to work out. What's been really great to see in this administration is there's an aggressiveness there in a positive way uh, to get ahead of this and to really interact with companies in this space to understand how they plan to come to market, the technologies that they're using, uh, and then how does that fit in with existing uh, regulatory frameworks, uh, and then collectively what is the best path forward. So uh, right now there is, at least for us, because we're looking at mammalian protein, uh, land-based animals, we will most likely be regulated jointly between FDA and then USDA. So FDA would take essentially everything from cell harvesting, uh, cell banks, culturing, all that, up to a point of where we're actually harvesting from our bioreactors and from our uh, industrial scale production facilities, and then look at labeling, packaging, and all that. Um, so we're very optimistic. Uh, we engage with regulators as often as we can um, because depending on where our research is going, we want to be um, open to the sense that we can be able to still protect our IP. And they've been very receptive and we're very optimistic. Cooperhouse also lauded the agency's joint approach to overseeing the production of these products because he said that ensuring safety is paramount for the category's long-term success. In the food industry, we look at the conventional products, be they meat, poultry, or seafood, there's a, an act, five-letter acronym called HACCP, H-A-C-C-P. So if I'm, a, if I'm making conventional seafood or meat or poultry, I'm, I'm required to have a HACCP program. The H-A stands for hazard analysis, what might go wrong. Uh, in three categories, biological, physical, or chemical. What might go wrong in your process while making conventional agriculture, agriculture. The CCP is a critical control point. What are you doing about it to prevent it from happening or minimizing the potential for it ever occurring? And, and God forbid something happens, you have a plan in place, a recall program to deal with that. So yes, our products should be and will have the same kind of asset program as conventional products. So it's under the same kind of logical uh, mandated uh, food safety requirement. Our hazards are different, our biological, chemical, physical hazards are different, but so is every other product, um, and our control points will be different. So it will be certainly follow the same methodology that exists currently in, in, uh, in the food industry. Um, but obviously, as you can imagine, uh, in the case of seafood, where uh, arguably a lot, a lot of the risks that currently exist will no longer exist because the process is, in fact, uh, so, so safe and you're dealing with initial product of initial plate count, if you will, microbiology plate count that is quite small. Uh, if you think about fish skin, you know, it's quite, quite laden with bacteria. Uh, this product has no skin. Uh, in the case of seafood, and obviously it's a uh, very low plate count, we'll probably have a longer shelf life, uh, and also no head, no tail, no, no bones either, um, and, uh, and be a product that will clearly be very safe, and yet they'll make sure that, that we have a process in place to demonstrate that. Kuberhaus added that as regulators and industry continue to hash out oversight of cell-based products, industry players need to continue to go to FDA, USDA, and other regulators early and often to ensure that everyone is on the same page and headed in the right direction. 
Well, there's a lot of wiggle room for how the regulatory framework could shake out. Cooper House and Madison agree that if all goes well on the regulatory side, they should be able to have their products on plates in restaurants and food service in just two to three years. Retail, however, might take a bit longer. So between the challenges with production and scaling and navigating the regulatory oversight, it's safe to say that bringing cell-based products to market is hard. And this begs the question, why bother? For the panelists, the answers came down to animal welfare, environmental health, human health, and economic development. While animal welfare is a given that cell-based products offer animal products without slaughter, the environmental impact is a bit more nuanced, as Pattison explained. When we look at the environmental impact, everything that we're seeing is driving this down, right? So if we transition to cultivated meat and you look at pork or other mammalian um, animals that are harvested and raised, you know, we can reduce land usage by 99%, energy consumption by half, um, greenhouse gas emissions by over 90%. So yes, do we still have an impact on the environment? Of course, because unless you just box all day, you're going to have some impact. Um, but we can really reduce that impact significantly, and that's really exciting. Um, not only for the company as a whole, but um, really interesting as we attract talent uh, and investors in this space. Falconer echoed these statements, adding that a quarter of the environmental effects of factory farming, including animal agriculture, are directly attributed to products that Americans feed their cats and dogs. Generally speaking, when we have a conversation around um, climate change and environmental sustainability and decreasing our consumption of animal products, we only think about ourselves because humans are the largest consumers of animal products. Um, but when you consider a statistic that's in between 25 and 30 percent, um, that's that's incredibly meaningful. So uh, we need to be thinking about our pets too. We need to factor them into the equation uh, when we think about how we want to modify our lives um, in order to minimize the damage that we're doing. Beyond the environmental impact, Cooper House said that cell-based products offer nutritional benefits to humans by offering the exact replica of the nutrition they'd receive from animal products but without some of the contaminants that are increasingly common. For example, he noted that cell-based production could lead to mercury-free tuna and fish without bioplastics. He also explained that the industry provided an added layer of food security. So the opportunity to actually manufacture a product and guarantee, you know, in the United States, FDA says 94% of seafood we, we, we consume is imported. So there's a huge opportunity to actually create jobs and build factories uh, so that's, uh, and displace our need and, and our reliance on imports, huge benefit. Um, and with that comes price stability, you know, something that doesn't exist right now in the seafood industry. With so many factors to balance and a lot of lingering questions by consumers, regulators, and potential investors about the process of cultivating cells and producing finished products, industry players are asking for help from nonprofits. In particular, Pattison said that NGOs are well-positioned to help raise funds for research and advocate to a variety of stakeholders. What I found really useful getting into this uh, space is the nonprofits that are in this work. So New Harvest, and they fund a lot of academical research, uh, specifically in Cell Egg, so support them, and then also the Good Food Institute. So they 
definitely take the lead in advocating for our industry as a whole uh, and educating a variety of different stakeholders. So that's one thing, support those organizations. Uh, two, reach out to the companies directly and get involved, um, whether it's be attending events or just asking us questions or wanting to come and work or intern for us, that would be fantastic as well because really we're getting to a, a point where we not, we not only need scientists, but we need business people and marketing people and public relations people. And the more people that we have uh, engaged in this mission, the better. Uh, and then three, really uh, advocating to your local representatives and speaking with your friends and family and your colleagues and being an ambassador for this type of technology and uh, these types of products. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I will be the only person in a group of two or three hundred people that has ever heard about this and needs to explain kind of what we're doing. And I have found over the last two years that that is getting better. Um, and then just really be informed, too. Gooberhouse echoed many of these points and also stressed the need to educate mainstream consumers and younger generations about the potential of this technology, as well as the impact they could have on the environment by choosing cultured cell products over animal-based options. Education is so critical. I think if people necessarily recognize the difference between cell-based and plant-based, they both meet a need for alternative protein, but in a different way with technologies that can't be done than plant-based and for and really coming full circle back to the man animal in this case or the sea animal um, without compromise of flavor or texture without process ingredients in some cases in our case without GM so it's really a uh, it's all the grail uh, of in the case of seafood what we can bring to the marketplace Education begins with, uh, as you mentioned, just some of your, uh, whether it's your congressional offices or other stakeholders, I think even chefs, you know, just to really let uh, the culinary professionals of the world uh, become, have them become more aware of this opportunity um, as they're educating the future food service operators. And of course, school kids, you know, just to really let the, this generation that's coming uh, out of grade school, high school, and college become increasingly aware of the challenges we have on our planet and what we can do to solve them through, uh, for those that are, are meat eaters and fish eaters, but actually can still enjoy those great products with plant-based or salt-based alternatives. Um, I think partnerships are number two, is how we can partner with all of you, all the NGOs and other, others aligned with this industry, food processing industries, uh, but there's so many stakeholders that we all can benefit from your wisdom and you're spreading the word about this whole opportunity. Um, in our case, we're, we're, we're going to launch, uh, uh, give a, a shout out to something that, uh, that we're going to announce uh, in another 30 days or so. We're actually launching a website called Eat Blue. So it's really about uh, celebrating ocean optimism, you know, really creating that kind of awareness. So it's our own campaign. It's kind of uh, something I came up with, but it mimics the concept of go green. But Eat Blue is about making smart choices, becoming aware. So the first level, I think Brian Kidman said a great yesterday, as we're looking at producetarian, it starts with awareness. You know, you know, become aware of the current situation and become aware of some opportunities to solve that. So, uh, and that's what we're excited to do too. And welcome all of you to join in that campaign approach. And with that, we reach the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to ensure that you remember. 
please subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.